you want to take your Bibles in and open up to John, uh, John chapter 4 is where we find ourselves. Last week, we looked at the question, how are we called to approach worship? And we're going to look at the same question today because I didn't have the chance to finish what I, what I wanted to say, uh, what I feel God's Word uh, says for us. Sadly, I did a, a fatal error, I think, of preaching because last week's message is forever going to be known as, what should I wear? And I don't want that to be the case because that wasn't the, wasn't the point. So I apologize uh, for that, if that's what you took out of that. Uh, but I do want to remind you a little bit of last week's message so that we can roll into this morning. As we ask the question, how does God tell us to approach worship? As we gather together this morning, how are we supposed to uh, approach this I mean, it, it can enwrap all, everything, our physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually. How do we, how should we come here and gather here this morning? And last week, we saw first with, with reverence and awe. We see that from Hebrews. We should gather this morning as we come to worship God with reverence and awe of God and who He is and what He has done. But also, we come with confidence, which is an interesting contrast coming with reverence and awe, but God allows us to come with confidence in Christ and what Christ has done for us. And so we get to approach the Holy of Holies. We get to approach God each week, even every day as we pray, as we read his word. And we can do that confidently. And because of that, then, we do it with gladness. We are to do it with thanksgiving. And so it should be a, it should be a joy for you individually in your private worship at home to be able to open God's word and read it. You should find some joy in that. But as we gather together as the body of Christ, there should be a great joy in the fact that we get to come here together and to be together to worship the God that has saved us through his son. Well, there's some more I think that scripture says about this. And today I just want to share a few more. Now, this definitely isn't an exhaustive list at all. I'm sure there's other places in scripture you could go to say, well, what about this in approach of worship? Yes, it's probably can find other things. Again, this isn't exhaustive, but I do think that these are important. And the first one is found here that I want to share today in John chapter 4. We're going to read a, a decent chunk, uh, verse 7 through verse 26, and this is a section that's been referenced throughout this series already, especially looking at verse 23, which we'll do as well. But follow along with me in John chapter 4 as we begin in verse 7. It says, A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman from Samaria, of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, 
and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. It's a real fascinating conversation that Jesus has with this lady. But we do want to pinpoint on verse 23, where Jesus says that we are to worship in spirit and truth because it helps us with our question this morning of how are we called to approach worship. And like I said, we've already discussed this passage uh, in this series, so I'm talking about spirit and truth, but let's dive in a little deeper maybe this morning. Jesus says here that we must worship in spirit. This means with our heart, which can only truly be done by a changed heart. And that's important to know. And this changed heart can only be changed by God himself. In Ezekiel uh, chapter 36, verse 26, it says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Now, that's an important passage when thinking about how to worship in spirit. Because you and I, as we walk into this room, cannot worship in spirit on our own this morning. It's just not possible. You can't conjure it up. You can't work it up. And that's because to worship in spirit has to come from your heart. And because of our sin, because of our rebellion, when we are separated from God, when we haven't been saved by God, our heart is stone, God's Word says. It's stone, and it's something that you cannot change. It must be a change that comes from the Lord. He must change your heart. And that's what we're seeing there in Ezekiel. I want that to be remembered. Because the only way to worship in spirit is to be one who says, my heart has been changed by the gospel. My heart has been changed because of what Jesus has done. I've put my faith and my trust in him and in him alone. And it's only those people who've made that declaration who can actually worship first in spirit. It's the only way to do it. And this is what Jesus is addressing with the Samaritan woman. And he uses this imagery of water and thirst to help her to see who he is and what he is talking about and what he's going to get to. She came to the well thirsty. Now, this is something that all of us understand. I'm, I'm assuming that you understand what it feels like to be thirsty. And it's not an enjoyable thing to be thirsty, but it's something that we all go through. But God in his great grace has given us many things to quench our thirst. Well, for this woman, she had to go to a well to get water in order to quench her thirst. And this is what she was, she was doing. She, she had this physical thirst and she wanted to go and find refreshment. And so Jesus uses this circumstance, this opportunity, to take a physical need that she's having and try to drive home a spiritual truth in her life, right? It's just like, oh, you've come here thirsty. And he starts talking to her about this living water. 
And you notice the confusion she has in verses 11 and 12. Look at what she says. She says, the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. You see, they took great pride in this well. This is our father Jacob's well. And he, he got this for us. You're saying you're better than him? And then if you, you want to go that far, where's your bucket? Where's your rope? How are you going to get this water? You see the confusion that this lady had. But soon after that, in verse 15, Jesus answers her. But then in verse 15, notice her response. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water. So it made no sense what was happening in this situation to her. You don't even have a bucket to get water with. But Jesus responds to her, gives her an answer, and notice what she does. By faith, she's starting to trust in this man. Sir, give me this water. If this is true, if there is a water that will cause me to never thirst again, to never have to come to this well and draw it again, I absolutely want this water. Now, at this point, I don't think she's thinking salvation. I don't think she's thinking forgiveness of sin. This lady is thinking of, I'll never have to thirst physically again. That sounds like a good thing. And so she's saying, of course I want this. And so there's still some confusion in her life, but she knows she wants what's being offered. Now, if you study the, the book of John, there's actually a very fascinating contrast. And so I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles just back maybe a page or two to John chapter 3. Now, John chapter 3 contains what probably is the most famous verse in Scripture. But there's a very interesting comparison, and I don't think John has done this by accident. I don't think the Holy Spirit has led John to write this way, where we have what we're going to read, the story of Nicodemus, who is a Pharisee, a very smart man who is teaching the Jewish people. He is a, he is a leader, and he has a conversation with Jesus. And then in the next chapter, we have a Samaritan woman, who does not matter at all, having almost the exact same conversation. It's a very beautiful comparison that we have taking place here. And so I want us to see that. And so look at John chapter 3. I'm going to begin in verse 1 and read a, read a decent chunk here, all the way to verse 21, so we can compare these two conversations a little bit. It says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. 
If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Notice how in verse 4, Nicodemus, just like the Samaritan woman, is confused. Jesus says something to him that just doesn't make sense. Just like Jesus telling this lady, I can get you water that will never make you thirst again, yet he doesn't even hold the bucket. What? How is that possible? Well, Jesus tells to Nicodemus, you have to be born again in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. And Nicodemus, again, being wise, being very smart, being a leader of the Jewish people, asks, you're telling me that as a man, I should enter into my mother's womb again and be born again. That's what you're saying. Confusion. Now, we look at Nicodemus and think, how dumb is that guy? But we might be asking the same question. How can I be born a second time? You're only born once, and then you die. There's no more birth. There's nothing like that happening. And so Nicodemus is asking this question. And so then Jesus talks to him, shares with him the answers to the questions that he has. And what's sad about this comparison is, remember, Jesus told the lady, he said, we worship what we know, you worship what you do not know. Remember that? He said that to the Samaritan woman. But to Nicodemus, he says, you know. You know. You know the truth. You know these things that you don't understand what I'm saying. And sadly, at the end of chapter 3, the reason that I tried to read all the way through is because as opposed to the Samaritan woman who responds in faith to Jesus by the end of chapter 4, which I didn't read, but you can read that. We don't have that with Nicodemus. So we have this smart man who should know. And we have this woman of Samaria who to the Jews is worthless and nothing and she is showing true faith. And when Jesus is talking to this woman, he says, we are going to be worshiping in spirit and truth. There is a time coming, and now it is here, when we will worship in spirit and in truth. And if you had to compare these two people, you would say, which one of these do you think is best suited to worship in spirit? To worship truly from their heart. We all would say, Nicodemus. It's Nicodemus. He knows He's read the book. He's studied it. He teaches it. If anybody is going to be able to worship truly in spirit, it is Nicodemus. And sadly, what we see by the end of chapter 4 is we'd all be wrong. It's the woman. It's the Samaritan woman who puts her trust and her faith in Jesus as the Messiah and goes into town and tells everybody what is happening and what is taking place and shares of this good news. And we just do not have this in Nicodemus. So what does all this mean, right? 
The teacher of the law has no response, yet the Samaritan woman does. Jesus is pointing out to Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman that salvation, a changed heart, a new life, everlasting thirst, quenching water, only comes from one source, and that it's him. It's Jesus himself. And that then, when that happens, it plays out interestingly in our worship to him, because true worship, he says, can only be done in spirit, which again is only possible from people who have been born again from people who have tasted of the water that causes them to never thirst again. So I remind you this morning, before we move on to the truth part, worshiping in spirit is not something we can manufacture. It's not something that you can make up on the spot. It's only possible through a life changed by Jesus Christ. That's it. That's it. And so if that's you this morning, if you've come this morning and, and you know you've been saved, you, you've trusted in Christ, then you worship in spirit this morning. But if you're here this morning and you haven't trusted in Christ, you never put your trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins, but you say, you know, I'm going to come though and I'm going I'm to worship God this morning, and maybe you're doing it, I don't know, to, to, to feel good, or, or maybe you're doing it to, to please God in some way. I kind of have some bad news for you today. You're not able to do that. You are not able to worship God if you're not found in Christ. You haven't trusted him because your heart hasn't been changed. And that's what Jesus was pointing the Samaritan woman to. Saying, ma'am, it's not going to matter if you worship in Jerusalem. It's not going to matter if you worship up on a mountain. It doesn't matter where you go. The question is going to be, are you worshiping, first of all, in spirit? That's what's the key. But then secondly, he says, in truth. We say, well, what does Jesus mean by that? Well, he means according to the word of God, which is himself, right? We must must worship him in spirit, but we must worship him according to his ways, not our ways. So maybe more importantly, uh, truth in this passage means knowing what God has done for you. Gathering this morning, worshiping him, understanding who he is and, and what he has done, again, according to his word, knowing that he saved you by his grace that he's given you mercy, that justice would have been for you just to be deleted off the scene. But instead, he pours out this grace on you and calls you his own. And as we gather, we think of this truth and it enables us again in spirit because because he saved us and changed our heart. Now in spirit and truth, we can worship him. God, this is who you are. This is what you have done for me, right? Right? So again, worshiping in truth of being born again, of of tasting the living water. In John 14, 6, it says, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So it's important for us as a church family to let Jesus guide and direct all of our worship to him. We have to make sure that we are, you know, Christ-centered and christ Focused in all that we do. Let his work rule and reign in our worship. Not, not my work, right? Not my skill set or my ability. No, we, we let him be the center of it all, right? That kind of leads what, to, the, to the next thing. Because if we are understanding what it means to worship in spirit and truth, then this next point I think will come very naturally and easy. But I do think it's something we struggle with. I know it's something that I can struggle with, and it's something that I see a lot of people struggle with. When we approach God in worship, we ask that question, how do we approach God in worship? 
We must approach him as contributors, not as consumers. As contributors, not as consumers. I really want to, you to think and ponder on that. D.G. Hart has a good uh, part of his book that talks about this, and I was, I was glad that I was able to read it and put some thoughts around it. But most of the time, when people come to worship, I think we come expecting mostly to sit and watch. You say, well, that's actually what I'm doing right now. Yes, thank you for doing that. Sit and watch. No action on our part. Now, you may stand and sing, or maybe you walked up and gave your offering, or you did it as you walked in, right? And there might be some, some other things that you've been able to do, but really, you just come here and you think, I really am just supposed to consume, or I've come here just to, to be filled up, or sadly, there's people who walk into churches too often, and they come to be entertained in, in some holy way. You know, maybe last night you were entertained by a movie, but today you're like, I'm going to come. This is holy entertainment. It's good for my soul. It's, it's good for me. And that's why we come here. And so we're coming here in a way of, of consuming. But actually, when we gather, the Bible tells us that we all gather to contribute. We all gather to come and to contribute to the worship of our God together. Now, of course, when we come, and it, this should be this way, hopefully the pastors here are working hard. And that's probably going to play out in the pastors organizing the service, planning out the service, and then should be leading, right, leading the service. And so, yes, and, and I, I want to do that. I, I like being able to do that. But I think sometimes we think, well, then the pastors just do it all. No, it's not how it is. Right? You have a role to do when you are here this morning. And I don't know if you think about how important your role is this morning as you sit here and even listen to me right now. The passage that I want to turn to for this is Luke chapter 10, verse 38 to 42. It'll be on the screen, or you can turn there in your Bible. It'll be a familiar story to most. But it says, Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. She went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. In this, it seems at first glance, at least from my perspective, and maybe this is just how I've been raised and thought, it seems to me like there's one lazy person in this story and there's one useful person in this story. And Martha, to me, would be useful while Mary is a lazy brown noser. I mean, that's how it comes across when I read this. And I don't think that the point of this story is for us to be able to say, see, I shouldn't work. I shouldn't do anything. No, I don't think that's what's trying to get put across here. So, but what is it then? What is this passage telling us? What is Mary doing right that Martha is not doing? We got to think about the situation that we're in here. 
Jesus is sitting and he's teaching. The Son of God is teaching and explaining the Word of God and telling them who he is. And so at this moment, what Jesus is pointing out is the best work that could be done would be to sit and listen. To sit and listen to what the master has to say. All that other stuff can be done later. All that other stuff, not, it's not bad stuff to do. Clean your house, cook, whatever she's doing. Getting stuff ready and straightened up. There's nothing wrong with that. But Jesus is there. And he's teaching. And Mary is focused on him, listening and paying attention and being changed by the truth of his words. This is the work that you have this morning. See, again, you think you come in here to just sit back. But that's not true. You have a much harder task, I think, than what I have this morning. You see, when I'm up here preaching, most of the time, I guess I should say, I'm engaged. I'm in it. I know where I've come. I know where I want to get to. I've put the study in. And so it's very easy for me not to fall asleep up here. Very easy. It's very easy for me to finish the sermon and say, everybody obviously got that. It was so clear. Because I've been studying it all week. I've been planning, prepping, and preparing. But you have to come in here. It took you who knows how long to get ready this morning. Your kids were frantic. You know, you got in the car and you're like, oh my gosh, I was supposed to get gas yesterday. I'm going to be late. I'm going to be late. You're like, no, I'll just push it. I can get gas after. Right? You come in here with all these different things and your task this morning, your work this morning as we gather for corporate worship is to pay attention, is to be engaged, is to listen to Christ speak to us together. And to allow him to change your heart. To allow him to work on you. Because some of you walk in here this morning, and you're here physically. But spiritually, you're saying, eh, no. You're not going to change me today. You're not going to impact me. The sin in my life, I'm not going to deal with it. I'm not going to listen. And so you can choose to do that if you would like. But then you're not being like Mary. Not allowing the words of Christ to be absorbed into you and to, and to speak to you. You see, this morning, I would love it if everybody in our church was here doing that work. You see, sadly, because of, I guess, I don't know what, maybe it's us giving in. I don't mean it to be that. But sadly, there's people in our church right now with kids in children's church. They don't get to sit and listen to what I think is the most important part of the week. We got security out in the hallway. They don't get to sit and listen, right? And so maybe we could look at them and say, you bunch of Marthas. I don't want to do that. But I would love it if we could all just be in here and sit and not to hear Pastor Tim speak this morning, but to hear Jesus speak to us this morning through his word. You see, we have all the rest of the week to be Marthas, don't we? We have all the rest of the week to get our stuff done, to go and to do and to serve. And in fact, the Bible tells us you should do that. Work hard for six days. Then there's a day of rest that God has given us 
a rest that was secured in Christ. We have the privilege to come and to hear his word preached. But you have to work at that. You have to work to listen. You have to work to understand it. You have to work to let it saturate your heart. And you have to be the one to let it change you. You need to do that. Now, don't get me wrong. I think God does a supernatural thing there. It's a work that only he can do. But I do think that in our stubbornness, we can be so stubborn to say, no, not for me this morning. See, the fact is, I could plan all that I want. I could preach until I drop. But if you don't listen, what good is it? If all you're doing this morning is that, fast as you can, like it hasn't even been a minute, it's still 1124. What good is my planning? I mean, what good is my prep? I could do my part in the work, but if you come this morning just to be a consumer and not to contribute in any way, and why am I doing what I'm doing? Well, what's the purpose? Why does Pastor Dave and the, and the band get together and practice and prepare and plan the songs and do their best to, to know the songs, to lead us in worship, if you're just going to stand there and your arms are going to be crossed and not sing? The only reason we sing songs is so that you will sing songs, so that we can come and sing together. If it's just Dave and the group singing, then we need to get rid of it because that's not the point. You have to contribute to that. Again, I'm not asking you to run sound. I am asking you two to run sound. Okay. I'm not asking you to run sound. I'm not asking you to come up here on the stage. I'm saying to contribute. To sing. See, there's other areas, I guess, that we could go to. But when we gather here, I want it to be known that we work together. When we gather together to worship, we are faithfully worshiping God together. We're giving and we're taking together. And so don't approach it as a consumer, but instead approach it as a contributor. Well, then lastly, in thinking about all this and thinking of approaching God in reverence and awe and with confidence in spirit and truth, thanksgiving, gladness uh, as a contributor, all these things, it seems like a big swath of things. And so there is a balance, I think, that takes place as we face worship and think about all this stuff that God's word tells us. Because it's important for us as we walk through these doors on this morning, not to come thinking, well, today I'm going to worship the God of the Old Testament. And so you just think of like mean and wrathful. And so you come in here with a great fear. We also, though, can't walk into the room this morning thinking, today I come to just worship my friend. Right, Because then we don't really have much reverence and awe when it's just our friend. And so there's a balance that must take place. And in Romans chapter 11, verse 17 to 22, I think, I think Paul kind of brings this out. He says, but if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. 
For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. This is a verse that's really pointed. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. In this, in this one verse, verse 22, Paul's saying, think about the kindness of God, but don't you dare forget about the severity of God. And that's the balance we need when we walk into this room each, each week. Yes, we can sing a song like, you are a good father to us. We can sing that song because we know that to be true. But we also have to remember he's a God of judgment. A God that deserves reverence and awe. And we have to balance these things of, of, a, of a healthy, godly fear as we worship him. And I know that that can be difficult, but it's a must. Because if we approach God just as one who wants to punish and destroy us, or as a God who's far off and different, distant, it can just lead to problems, right? Because when we do this, there becomes no life at all in our worship. There's only fear and dread. If, if when we walk in this room and all we think is, is God is angry and, and God is going to punish us today, then we just walk in here with all this fear and dread. There's no life at all. Just fear. Uh, maybe some of you experience that with your own dads. Never had a great relationship with them because you're just scared to death of them all the time. I've had people tell me that before. Like, I struggle with thinking about God as my father. You say, well, why? I didn't have a good one. I was scared of him all the time. See, there's no life there. There's no relationship there. Just view your dad as a, as a bully, as somebody who wants to execute me or hurt me at any moment. And a lot of people, that's how they think of God. As soon as I step out of line, he's there to hit me with lightning. And so I got to make sure I dot my I's, cross my T's, or else he's going to strike me. There's no life in that worship at all. But on the flip side, as I said, we cannot approach God as just our friend who, hey, hey, we get to hang out today. Oh, it's just, yeah, it's Tim, man. Here I am. You're so good to me. Here I am. Aren't we cool? Well, Tim, what about your life? What about all that stuff you did all week? Ah, you don't care about that. You saved me. You're my boy now. We're, we're good with that stuff. What's the problem with that worship? There's no awe. There's no reverence. See, we have to balance that of no, this God that we see in the Old Testament who lets his wrath be known to nations at times. The God that we see who speaks of, if you do not obey this law, I am not your God. This God who seems so harsh to so many people and it's why they turn away from the faith. That God is the same God who would send his son to die to fulfill all that for you. And that must be in the forefront of our minds when we walk into this room to worship together. Today I come to serve the God, the one and only. And I need to approach him with respect and honor and gladness and thanksgiving and spirit 
and in truth and understanding who he is and what all he has done. I must worship him to the best of my abilities this morning by singing praises to his name, by giving, by listening to his word preached and and allowing it to impact my life, by my interactions with my fellow Christians, my church family who God has given me to, to love them and care for them and to put their needs before mine even. This is what I must do to worship Him in in spirit and truth because of all that He's done for me. This is what I can do for Him in return. You know, it's usually not by accident what we read in our services before I preach. Pastor Spencer mentioned there in Titus, why do we serve Him? Because of what He's done for us. Because of the grace. And that's how we come to worship. Why do I worship him? Because of who he is and what he's done. And therefore, I want to approach him in an honorable way each and every week or each and every day as I open his word on my own or to read it with my family. I want us to know the God that we serve is awesome, is mighty, is powerful, but wrapped himself in flesh to die for us, and he loves us, and he cares for us. I'm going to ask if you would, bow your head this morning. I want to give you an opportunity to respond to the word of God, and this is what I kind of want you to think about as you respond to the word of God. We've been going through this worship series for a little bit now, and I'll ask you a point of question. Again, are you doing your part Are you allowing the word of God to soak into your heart and to really cause you to reflect on how you've approached him in worship? Maybe your whole life or maybe just recently or whatever it might be. Does it even cross your mind? I don't know. I know I think about that for me. Tim, are you actually allowing God to work in your heart? Or are you just going through the emotions? And I hope that you are. I know many are. But I hope that you're worshiping God faithfully in your life. If not, I hope that you'll respond to him this morning. God, I ask that you would help us today, yes, in our life in general. Help us to honor you in everything we say and do. God, I know it can be difficult for us to understand that you are the same God, that you have never changed. Old Testament, New Testament, there's no newness. You are who you are. So God, we must respect you in that way and honor you in that way. And God, I pray that our worship would play out that way. God, you know our lives. Your word tells us that you knit us together in our mother's womb, that you know every hair on our head. Your word tells us that if you care for the birds, how much more then do you care for us? You give us an example in Hebrews that if our Father knows how to discipline us and care for us, how much more do you care for us? That you've shown us over and over again how much you love us, what you've done for us through Christ. So God, the least that we could do is to worship you well. 
to honor you well. God, as you give us opportunity to gather together on Sunday mornings, Sunday evenings, God, we want to honor you. And so I pray that we would do that. God, I pray that as individuals, we would reflect in our hearts and our minds and our life. Are we approaching you each week honorably? Or do we just do it in kind of a, a way that's just passing and, oh, this is just something I do. God, help it not to be that way. Help us to have reverence and awe for you. Help us to approach you with gladness, thankfulness. Help us to understand that we worship you only in spirit and truth because of the work that you've done in our life. Help us to see how we as a church family can work together to honor you with our worship. It's not just done by Pastor Tim or the Sunday school teachers or whoever it might be, but it's all of us together worshiping you as a church family that you've brought together, a body of Christ that you've assembled together. So God, this morning, just help us to respond to your word how we should as we sing this last song again. Help it to be done in worship. Help it to be done in respect and honor of the one that we sing to this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.